Let's pray. God and Father, as we dive into your word, we pray that you would be with us, that you would meet with us. Though we are sinful, we pray that we might each hear this as your word, as it comes to us with authority and grace. And though I am sinful, I pray that you would be with me as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we are starting a new sermon series. We just spent about eight months preaching through the book of Revelation. And if you haven't been with us for a while, maybe just a word up front about what we do here at Kish. One of the things that we believe in that I really believe in as a preacher is that this, the diet that we should have as a church, the baseline way that we should engage with God's word is simply to walk through books of the Bible and try each Sunday to take the next text in that book and say what it says. It's easy for preachers to slip into this idea that what I'm going to do on a Sunday morning is talk about what I want to talk about, and this is a way to safeguard against it. It is in many ways God's word that determines what we're going to talk about each morning. So that is our habit as the church. While we don't do that every single Sunday, that is the baseline of what we do for preaching, and we're about to start a new book of the Bible. In this case, we're going to start the book of Luke, which is a book that we're going to be with for a while. Luke was an early Christian. He was a doctor. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was something of a scholar, and he was probably a Gentile. We don't have a lot of details about his life, but that's what we seem to know. And importantly, that means that he was not Jewish like Jesus or like the first apostles, but he was a cultural and religious outsider who became a Christian. And in many ways, his gospel is written for other outsiders like him. It is addressed to Theophilus, who we'll talk about in a minute, but who seems to also have not been Jewish. And what Luke wants is to help people who did not get to walk the earth with Jesus, were not Jewish living in the same culture as Jesus, to help them understand who Jesus was. And that's why he wrote this gospel. He explains his mission in the opening verses. If you start in verse 1, first he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." So Luke notes that there's already narratives about Jesus' life. And he's not saying that he's contradicting those narratives. In fact, he seems very friendly to them. And probably the biggest narrative of Jesus' life Luke is thinking about is the Gospel of Mark, which you can flip to just before Luke in your New Testament. And Luke actually uses Mark as a source, and clearly he quotes parts of Mark and follows along with Mark in parts of his Gospel. So there's these different narratives about Jesus' life. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So there's these eyewitnesses too. A huge part of Luke's work was about interviewing those eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, recording what they had written. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke's goal is to take the narratives that exist about Jesus, the eyewitness testimony, the eyewitnesses that he's talked to, and to compile it together into an orderly account of the life of Christ. And he's doing that for somebody named Theophilus. Now that's Greek. 
and it simply means a lover of God. So it's probably not someone's real name. Most likely this was some person, though, that Luke knew, some Greek patron who was interested in having an account of the life of Jesus. It's also possible it was sort of a community of people that he's speaking to this way. But regardless, the point is that Luke's goal is to communicate to this person, these people who are like us, who weren't those eyewitnesses, what happened in Jesus's life. So that's Luke. And starting next week, we'll start looking at that orderly account. But for this week, I want us to do something kind of different. I don't usually do this sort of thing in a sermon, but here's what we're going to do. When people think about religion, they focus on the idea of sort of timeless truths. People treat religion like philosophy, that religion is about principles for life and ideas about spirituality and God, these abstract ideas. Christianity and Judaism before it are different from that idea of religion in a fundamental way. Now, Christianity does contain timeless truths, but those truths are anchored and find their expression in history. Luke is anchoring his account of Jesus in history. Jesus is not a concept or an ideal or a fable. He is a person who lived and died and rose again in history for our salvation. At a specific point in time, in a specific place, if you had been there, you could have seen him and talked to him and touched him. And you will misunderstand Christianity if you do not understand that historical foundation for what it teaches. And so this morning, we're going to do two things. First, I want to give you four reasons that this account in Luke and others like it in the New Testament are historically reliable four reasons that this is historically reliable, and then three reasons that that matters. Four reasons we can rely on these accounts, and then three reasons it matters. And let's go, because we have a lot of ground to cover. First, this is early testimony. The first reason we can trust these accounts is that they are early testimony. Luke probably wrote this gospel sometime in the 60s AD. So, 30 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, there is some debate about the dating, and if some people do try to date it a little bit later than that, although their reasons mostly rest on things like Jesus couldn't possibly have known the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which are problematic for other reasons. But regardless, it is very early and close to the life of Christ. And Luke wrote relying, like we said, on Mark, who therefore recorded these events even earlier probably in the 50s or early 60s. So he's an even earlier witness. And that's hardly the earliest part of the New Testament. Consider Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. This was the first letter that Paul wrote, we think, and it was written maybe around 55 AD. And in 1 Corinthians, he quotes this earlier teaching, which seems much earlier, this kind of early Christian creed that Paul had taught to the Corinthians when he was with them, and he quotes it here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So that, that creed was something they had already known from years before he's writing. So probably within like 15 years of Jesus' death, 
that contains the core testimony of Christianity, the death for sins and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a very early testimony. And here is why that matters. Some people, in trying to give an accounting of Christianity, like to compare it to mythology. They say that what happened is that there was this Jesus dude, sure, and he taught some stuff, but then this mythology developed over time about him and the stuff about his resurrection and being God, that came much later. And it is true that mythology develops from history. For example, there was probably a Trojan War, and maybe even real people like Achilles and Hector, but the account we have of the Trojan War, the Iliad, was written by Homer about 500 years later. And so we recognize there that what happened in history is largely lost in mythology. Or in another example, we, we can watch this in the Middle Ages. There would be these books about lives of the saints. And what would happen is some person who became a saint would live, and there would be like a biography written about them while they were still alive or just after they died. And it's a pretty down-to-earth book. And then a couple hundred later, you'll find other biographies of that person, and they're doing all this crazy stuff, and you see the kind of mythology arise out of history again. But the problem with applying that idea to the Bible is that there just isn't time. The Bible is not like that, right? It's 500 years between the Trojan War and Homer. It's 15 years between Jesus's death and when the church is saying he rose from the dead, in sources that we have here, right? The, the New Testament is not fables made up hundreds of years later about Jesus. It contains the earliest sources we have about his life. So it's early testimony, and it's also eyewitness testimony. A great deal of the New Testament is eyewitness testimony. These books were written either by people who knew Jesus directly some of whom walked with him on earth and witnessed his resurrection, or they were written by people who knew people who knew Jesus directly. Just think about this. In the Gospels, like Luke, there's this huge cast of characters. And sure, some of them are sort of groups like the Pharisees, but there's a lot of people who are named. The 12 apostles, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, Simon of Cyrene, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus. And even when people aren't named, we're often given specific details so that we would know who they are. So like in Luke 8, when Jesus raises a dead girl to life, it doesn't start once upon a time. Instead, it tells us where he is and that it was a daughter of Jairus, a leader in the synagogue who Jesus did this to. In Luke 17, Jesus heals men with leprosy on the border between Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. We're given all of those details. Why is that? Quite simply, because for Luke's first readers, those people were around and you could talk to them. In fact, a lot of people think that named characters in the Gospels are named because they had become Christians and were a part of the early church. And so the reason we know the story about like Zacchaeus is because you could go to the church that Zacchaeus went to and sit down with Zacchaeus and ask him about that time that he was up in the tree and Jesus called him down. And maybe in that story, we don't know that for sure, but that eyewitness testimony is clearly foundational to the New Testament. If you read on in that passage from 1 Corinthians we read, Paul talks about a list of 500 people who met Jesus after his resurrection. And the reason he talks about that, he says many of them are still alive because he's saying, go talk to those eyewitnesses and hear, hear their accounts. And that's only strengthened by the suffering of those eyewitnesses. This is eyewitness testimony 
and many of those eyewitnesses suffered and died because of what they testified to. Some people, even if they accept what we've said before, they might say, well, maybe those people just made it up. Maybe they were deluded. I mean, because people do end up believing wrong things, and even eyewitnesses can get stuff wrong, right? And There's a lot of problems with that. One of them is just the number of eyewitnesses we're talking about. Absolutely, one person can get kind of an inaccurate story about an event. And um, But but when we're talking about dozens and hundreds of people, you're able to correct for that. But the bigger issue with that is that, look, why do people believe lies? Why do people believe lies? Well, it's to get power or some kind of advantage in the world. They're doing it because it it makes their lives better. Get power, get some advantage. But the eyewitnesses to Jesus suffered incredibly because of their testimony. Many of them died for it, and all of them lost family connections. In some cases, they lost property, and they lost the respect of the Jewish society that they lived in. The, The apostles are especially striking here. All but one of them died for their testimony about Jesus. And John, the one who didn't die, was imprisoned for life on an island because of it. Here's here's why that matters. Do people die for lies? Yes. There are absolutely people who believe false things and die for it. But do people die for lies that they know are lies when all it would take is for them to admit that they were lying and they could be saved? I mean, maybe a couple of people, maybe, but the answer is almost always no. And certainly you couldn't get, you know, 12 people, the, the, these 12 apostles to all die for this same lie that they knew was a lie. One more example of that. Jesus's own family, at least some of them, become Christians and suffer persecution and death for their con- conversion. Can you imagine being so convinced that your brother was God in the flesh, if you knew it wasn't true, that you would die for that? That's the power of this eyewitness testimony. And then one last thing to consider in terms of this being reliable history is the explosive growth of Christianity. It's explosive growth. There are a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah in the years around Jesus. There were lots of false messiahs, and what would happen is they would go and get a following, and then they would die, and their followers would disperse, and nothing would happen. Jesus came and claimed to be the Messiah and died, and within a generation, there were tens of thousands of Christians across the Roman world. Within a couple hundred years, Christianity had spread across the entirety of the empire, was threatening it, and then ultimately the empire accepted and made it its religion, and it did that without ever holding political office or military conquest, or or really access to any of the halls of power that might explain how it could spread. The reason that matters is to say this. It says, first of all, that that power to expand for early Christianity rested in part on its historical reliability, that it was the compelling testimony of those eyewitnesses and the people who talked to them that, that made the difference here, that caused the church to grow and blossom after Jesus died instead of simply falling apart and disappearing. And that also should remind us that we're talking about something here that's really unique. Like we said, it's not like mythology because of the early date, but it's also not like a myth or really even any other religion in the world because of this explosive growth. Something had to have happened there This thing that the eyewitnesses testified to about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus had to stand at the root of that in order for that kind of growth to happen.
So that's four reasons to think that this is true, reliable history, what we read about in Luke and in the rest of the New Testament. Let me just say something about what that does not mean before we talk about three things that that should mean for us. That does not mean that you have to believe it. There is a set of arguments I can make. There, There is no set of arguments I can make that says, look, it's like math. One plus one equals you have to believe in Jesus. And the reason for that is because this is history. Could the moon landing have been faked? Sure. Could, could all of history before the present day be some shadowy invention of a dark conspiracy? I guess so. The, the reality is that whenever we talk about history, you don't have to believe it. I can't force you to believe it. But what I'm saying is that there are things that are reasonable to believe about history things that are historically reliable, and that it makes sense to believe. And these accounts about Jesus are one of those sorts of things. You can refuse to believe them. And in fact, as we're going to talk about, there might be reasons you want to refuse to believe them, because if this is true history, it places demands on our lives and challenges the way we think about the world. But it is not foolish to believe this. There is as much historical evidence for the life of Jesus as there is for the life of Julius Caesar or or Socrates. There's actually probably more, quite a bit more for Jesus than for Socrates. And we all agree that it's reasonable to believe in those figures. All right. So that's the historical argument. Contrary to what you might hear on some TV special, contrary to the way many people seem to talk, what we are reading is a trustworthy, reliable historical account. Why does that matter? That's the second question. How should that affect the way we think about and live in the world? Well, let me suggest a couple of answers. First, that should give us confidence. It should give us confidence if we are Christians. That is Luke's stated purpose for writing this book. If you read verse 4, he says he's writing that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke interviews these eyewitnesses and compiles these sources because he wants to give a sense of certainty to these people who are following Jesus. We all, in some seasons of our life, struggle with doubts. Those can be intellectual doubts. Is what we believe true? Is it factual or is it just made up? It can also be emotional or relational doubts. Is God good? Will he care for and take care of me? And the historical reliability of Christianity actually speaks to both of those kinds of doubts. Obviously, it addresses the intellectual doubts we sometimes feel. Let's talk about those for a minute. There are absolutely smart people who are willing to say things that are challenging to what we believe about Jesus. There always have been. And some of us view that as the problem, but really that's not the problem. That's just always been a reality, that there are people who don't believe and raise intellectual doubts. But there are two problems with how some of us engage with those doubts. The first problem is that some of us use the idea of faith to just avoid thinking about those questions and pretend like they aren't there. We we cover our ears and go, la, 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 I have faith, I'm not listening. And, And that's an issue, one, because that's not what faith means. Faith means trusting in what you know to be true, not believing what you know is not true. But it's also a problem because it doesn't work. 
Those doubts will over time slowly eat away and corrode our souls if we try to just pretend like they aren't there. Even if we somehow manage to pretend hard enough, our children, our friends, they're not going to. So, so we have that wrong idea about faith, and that's one problem. But the other problem that we can have is that we can, we can hear those doubts, and then we can just sort of embrace them without actually questioning them and seeking answers to what they say. There are good answers to challenges about Christian faith. Certainly, sometimes you're going to have to wrestle to find those answers, and sometimes you're going to have to do work. You might not come out of that process as dogmatic as you were when you went into it, but truth is on the side of Christ, and we don't need to be afraid of intellectual doubts. What we do need to do, though, when we feel them, is take the time and put in the work to find the answers. So the historical foundation helps us with intellectual doubts, and then it also helps us with our emotional and relational doubts. Here's what I mean. Imagine that I tell my kids, I love you, trust me, and they're doubting me. How might I convince them? Well, I could talk about how I feel or about the idea of love, something like that. I might say, I have this deep affection for you in my heart. I could say, I just really, really, I do love you. And, and I could do that, and that's fine. But that in itself is not actually very convincing if they're really doubting my love. The other option I have, the better option, is to instead talk about the history in which I have shown my love for them. To say, look, I was there when you were born. I cared for you as an infant. I spent time with you. I watched you grow up. I provided for you. I've done these things for you. I've shown my love in all these ways throughout your life. And that is how you can trust in my love today. The past is the foundation for you trusting in my present love. God's love works like that. When we ask, how do we know that God loves us? It is not just that we should quote Bible verses that say, really, God does love you. He delights in you. That's, that's fine. But God's love in Scripture is always proven in history. In Romans 5, Paul says this. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love in that. So, so how do we know that God loves us when we're doubting it? The answer is not just to believe it really hard. The answer is that we can look at that cross on that hill on that day when Jesus Christ, God and man, suffered and died for our salvation. And that is a proof, a demonstration of his love. We can have confidence in that when we doubt God. So we get that confidence and then the second thing that the historical reality of Christianity gives us is a recognition of its authority. That scripture has authority to speak to us about how we should live and think and move through the world because it is rooted in history. The Apostle Peter makes this point in his second letter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then Peter goes on from that observation to stress the authority of Scripture and call us to pay attention to it. We in America have this deep-seated sense that our preferences are what defines truth, at least when it comes to religion. I hear it so often when I talk to people. 
I mean, I hear things like this, like someone says, man, I really liked that sermon. I really agreed with what you said, as if the, the, that's why you like the sermon. Or, you know, I just disagree with this idea in the Bible. Or, and I just feel like this is true. Or the God I believe in, he would never do that. And, and I hear all of that, and that's well meant, but what that reflects is that we have this buffet mentality about Christianity. We think Christianity is like a salad bar, and there are these ideas that are laid out in the Bible, and what, what I'm supposed to do is kind of choose the ones I like and skip over the ones I don't like. So like so like my Christianity would have a little bit of iceberg lettuce, and then lots of cheese and bacon and Thousand Island dressing on top, and maybe your Christianity has like spinach greens and those little onion things and oil and vinegar dressing, but, but that the fundamental thing that determines what our Christianity looks like is what we like. And if Christianity was just a religion, just some spiritual abstract ideas, that actually makes sense. Because spiritual ideas are hard to prove. They are not anchored in anything. And so it makes sense for us to just let our preferences decide. But because Christianity is grounded in history, that is not an option. If Jesus was the Son of God, who died for our sins and rose again on the third day, I cannot pick and choose which things about him I like and then avoid the ones that I dislike, because that is anchored in something outside of me. And if that happened, I have to recognize that it has authority. Christianity comes to us as history, and so it is a challenge to us. It is a take-it-or-leave-it-or question. If it didn't happen, there is no point pretending like it did. That the sort of spiritual ideals of Christianity don't have anything to make us believe them. But if it did happen, then everything has to change. And we have to build our life on that and recognize its authority. So the historical reality of Jesus gives us confidence and it speaks to his authority. And then the last thing it does, the sweet thing it does, is that it is our hope of salvation. It is our hope of salvation. Here's the problem with that kind of abstract religion. It can't actually change anything about the world. Abstract ideas about God's love and man's duty to man and all of those things, maybe that will change me and my heart and my behavior some of the time, but that cannot change our broken world. Because if it could, Christianity would have been fixed a long time ago. I mean, have you ever thought... I think of it as like the folk song problem, right? That, that everyone agrees with the folk songs that say that we should all have world peace and hold hands and be brothers and sisters and love and get along with each other. Everyone listens to those songs and it's like, yeah, why don't we just do that? And we never do. Everyone in our world agrees that you should do the right thing. Everyone agrees that we should be good to each other. Most people agree that there is a God who loves us. We all agree about that, and yet our world is a mess. And that's because ideas cannot in themselves fix history. It takes history to do that. The hope that Luke and the hope that all of the New Testament wants to point us to is that in Jesus, God has entered into history. He has worked salvation in history, and because of that, history is beginning to change and will ultimately be restored. Imagine this, and we'll close with this. Imagine that you live in a kingdom that has fallen apart. 
There is no king on the throne. Everyone is squabbling for power. They're doing their own thing. And there is corruption there. And enemies come in and take what they want. And this shadow hangs over the land. You live in that kingdom. First, imagine that you meet someone who is a spiritual teacher. They have these religious ideas. And they say that they come and say to all the people who live in the kingdom, we should believe in the idea of a king. We should believe in social order and human decency and doing what's right. If we just believe in the idea of this kingdom, then that will fix things. Now, you might like what he says, and you might agree with a lot of what he says, but the reality is that the, your kingdom has probably seen a long line of such spiritual teachers, and, and nothing has been fixed. There's not hope there. But then, imagine that you talk to someone else and they say, you know, you know what? The king is returning. After being away for ages, longer than anyone can remember, the good, rightful king is coming home. And he's going to take up his throne and reign and restore peace and order. And in fact, he's already arrived. And he is putting those plans into motion right now. And I know because I have met him and I have seen it. He has proved that he is who he says he is to me and to these other people. And he's calling us to start to live as citizens of that kingdom, knowing that he has arrived and soon he's going to take his throne and reign. That is the story that Luke is trying to tell. That the king has come and he has spoken to those eyewitnesses and they have seen the proofs and they're anticipating the fact that this king Jesus is going to take up his throne and reign. That is a story that can give us hope in this broken world. And that is the story that Luke is going to invite us into. Let's pray. Almighty Father, you are not a distant God. You are not absent. You rule over the world. You dwell with us by your Spirit, and you entered into history in Jesus Christ and are working in history, in our histories, in this world to redeem all things. Father, we pray that you would move in history right now. We pray that you would move in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic that we are facing, that you would bring healing to the nations, wisdom to those who seek to prevent it and find cures and treatments for it. We pray that you would be at work through us as we, as we try to wisely deal with it. Pray that you would be at work even beyond what we can do to bring healing and restoration. Father, we pray for our leaders, those in government and other positions of authority, that you would grant them wisdom, that you would guide and call them to walk in the ways that you would have them walk and turn them aside from error, selfishness, squabbling, and other folly. Pray that you would help us to honor them and respect the authority you've given them, and that you would be with us as we walk as citizens of this land. Father, we pray that you would move in history to protect the poor and the least of these, those who are most affected both by this virus and by the economic fallout of it, Lord. Provide for their needs. Support and care for them. Call us to be mindful of them and be working. And Lord, we pray that you would use this moment in history to build up your church and draw people to yourself. We pray that you would bring us to repentance for the ways that we are so often half-hearted, that we fail to recognize your authority and rejoice in your salvation. We pray that you would restore and renew us as your people. And we pray that through that work, 
we might be making the good news of Jesus and, and that the good news that the king has come and has worked salvation and he will take up his throne known to those around us. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, friends, join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. <clears throat> 